And it was a humbling experience to look through the window and, you know, almost want to yell out, like, you know, click the button, click the button, you know, it's right there. And they couldn't find it. And they couldn't. And, and, and what I realized is so many of my assumptions and my team's assumptions about how human beings actually um, interacted with a design were completely wrong. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today we've invited John S. Couch, former VP of product design at Hulu and author of The Art of Creative Rebellion, which was published in early 2020. Thanks so much for joining us today, John, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. You know, you recently came out of a role where you were heading up product design at Hulu, but uh, you've had a, a journey through the tech world and even publishing, I believe. So can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? Yeah, I got my first proper job, you know, like one with insurance and getting paid every two weeks, probably at Wired Magazine. And at that point, I was um, in a bookstore and I saw this really amazing magazine that was white on white. And I'd never seen anything like that. It was literally a white magazine with an emboss with the word Wired. So I, I, I checked it out, fell in love with the magazine and didn't know any better and just called them and said, hey, you know, I'd like to come work for you. And they said, what can you do? And I said, well, I, I can do Photoshop and I can do Quark, which was an old publishing software. And by the way, I couldn't do either one of these yet. I was just saying I could do this so I can get my foot in the door. And they said, great, what else can you do? And I said, well, I speak Japanese. And they go, oh, awesome. We, we have a Japanese edition that we need someone to help on the uh, editorial as well as the, you know, relationship with the Japanese office. And I'm like, great, I'll do that. And that was true. You know, I could speak Japanese. So it was a really interesting uh, kind of like graduate school for me uh, to come into. And then on top of that, I mean, it was a crazy environment where you would literally, I'd walk down the hallway and I would see the edge from you two walking with Brian Eno went down the hallway. And then Jaron Lanier who did VR was wandering the halls. And then, you know, one day, uh, Bill Gates was there and it was just a, a very unusual time. But then, you know, quickly San Francisco uh, blew up in a economically, you know, accelerated back in the nineties. So I ended up doing a startup and had the classic experience in 1999 of writing a business plan uh, the night before we were going to go meet on Sand Hill road with an, an investor and <clears throat> didn't really know really what I was doing. But the next day, uh, we went to Sand Hill Road, met with a venture capitalist who I will not mention, but came out after 30 minutes with around $4 million. And this is like in 1999 with an unproven business plan you know, that was basically called together by myself and a couple of other people. And we were off to the races and we had a startup. And of course, when the dot bomb happened, that all went away. But I had moved just about four months before the dot bomb happened to LA to marry my, my now current wife. When we moved to LA, uh, it was a very different time because it was very much the, uh, LA is very much an industry town. And there was a huge amount of um, distrust about the digital revolution in general. What I had to do is find a job within the industry. And I ended up becoming 
a VP of Interactive at CBS. That was uh, an interesting thing because CBS is not the most you know future forward company in terms of the demographic. It's an older demographic. They have shows like CSI, you know, Survivor. So I kind of came in, helped build uh, CBS.com. And that was my first really strong foray into product development and then kind of moved through CBS, left CBS, ended up doing work for uh, Qualcomm. It was, you know, very much about trying to do mobile television. After that, I left and went into e-commerce. And so I ended up working at a company called Magento. And at Magento, uh, it was an open source e-commerce platform. It got acquired by eBay. So I ended up becoming um, head of design for eBay Enterprise as well as Magento. And then I worked as a head of an agency that they had acquired. So at one point, I think I had over 140 designers that were kind of reporting into me through various parts, which is not something I recommend to do at all. Magento got split off to private equity. I left at that point. Uh, Magento is now owned by Adobe. I ended up that time going to Hulu. And so that was in 2016. Now I'm here. So that's the <laughs> that's my whole CV in a very short period of time. It's a really, really fascinating story. Interesting journey. So tell us a little bit about what you did at, at Hulu. I started in January of 2016 at Hulu, and it was an interesting time. It was only five years ago, but at that time, there was only the few major streaming services. There was, um, of course, Netflix, and there was Amazon Prime Video, and then there was Hulu. And Hulu, at the time, had more or less a reputation of being uh, online television, You know, which was yesterday's TV you could watch today. And they wanted to move away from that and really, you know, show their ability to do much more than that. So Hulu originally started around 2008, and it was uh, uh, owned by several traditional media companies as a way to hedge your bets against the future and the territory that YouTube was going into. YouTube was rising very quickly, and then the major networks realized that they needed to band together to some extent to get their own streaming service that could compete you know, with YouTube. And when I started at Hulu in 2016, there was four owners of the company. There was, you know, Fox, NBC, Comcast, Time Warner, and Disney. And these kind of served as four competitors who actually were working together to use Hulu as the uh, kind of the sandbox to innovate and figure out like where the future of distribution of content was going to be going. So when I started, it was kind of a question of like, why, why would I want to go to Hulu? But I and when I talked to them, they said, well, look, we're, we have this big vision of really changing the streaming environment and integrating live television into the over-the-top environment. And so I thought, well, that would be interesting to do. So when I started in 2016, I also had the requirement where, like I asked and they agreed to it, that I, that I would not report into product. And, and the reason why it was important to me is I, I traditionally felt that design has been kind of in the services industry, you know, whether it's for marketing, branding, or product. And we tend to be on the end of a conveyor belt of product requirements uh, that are, you know, usually a pile of JIRA tickets that are, you know, sent in your direction. And I wanted to move it away from this kind of waterfall mentality where product is is at the beginning of the process, kind of develops the requirements, defines the product, throws it over the wall to design who then, you know, quote, makes it pretty and tries to make it actually work. And then they throw it over the wall to development and then development, you know, is annoyed because they were not involved in the process at all. And then ultimately it gets kicked over to marketing and branding and, and gets shipped out. And I thought that was really inefficient. And so I wasn't trying to make 
Hulu a design-driven company, but I felt that design had to be at the table. So metaphorically, there's a round table around which you would have development, uh, product management, and design. And you would have like some sort of like program management that would then help them tie the whole thing together. And so they agreed to this. And in 2016, there was around, I don't know, 9 million paid subscribers. We went through a process of not only hiring, because I had about five product designers that I inherited. I ended up hiring around 40, 40 product designers within about nine months. We were able to not only uh, hire, but build culture. We hired a UX research group as well. Because uh, there was not really one uh, within Hulu for UX, and ultimately, we uh, named the uh, project Bowie uh, because, um, in honor of David Bowie, is kind of the patron saint of the project. Because when I started, it was about a week. I was a week into my job when David Bowie passed, and I thought not only would it be a good homage to him, but actually it would be a, a symbolic idea of constantly changing. You know, the design based upon user behavior and technological advancement over time and not to be completely precious about the design, but allowing it to constantly evolve. We, with all this happening, we were hiring, we we're building culture. We also had to work with a couple of external agencies and it was more or less boots on the ground to kind of get everything going. Cause we had now two parallel things we were doing. We had to maintain the existing business while building a new business at the same time. And then about 13 months later, and this was like daily being in startup mode, you know, working crazy hours every day, uh, we were able to dock the two experiences together, uh, launch it on um, a few platforms, Android, iOS, uh, Xbox, TPOS, and the web. And it launched at what's called the Upfronts in New York. And the Upfronts is an annual kind of advertising gathering of all the major television networks and even streamers and cable networks to sell advertising upfront against TV shows. So people would go to it and say, well, look, we're offering out these new shows. An advertiser like Johnson & Johnson says, well, we'll put X amount of money towards advertising for that show. So it billions of dollars are transacted within the space of a few weeks during the upfronts. So we, we launched uh, the new experience that Hulu had uh, in May of 2017, along with a, a show that was called The Handmaid's Tale. And The Handmaid's Tale became lightning in a bottle along with the new experience. And suddenly... Hulu's story was completely changed because in addition to this, in addition to this, we also coordinated the marketing and branding of Hulu to look like the product, which it had not been before. And there's always a separation within most companies between the marketing side of the house, the CMO controlling the, the agencies and the advertising and, and the marketing and the, the branding, and then the product side of the house. And what we tried to do is pull those two together. So to be a unified experience uh, between 2016 and now we had another update about, you know, six months ago during COVID to refine the Bowie experience and the total, you know, net subscribers is more than quadrupled uh, during that period of time. Right now, Hulu uh, during that period of time also became majority owned by Disney and they launched Disney plus last, last year as well. So now my former design team is now integrated into the Disney Plus team. That's an amazing uh, journey. I, I find Hulu to be amazing in that uh, I feel like the launching of the company even 
sort of reads like the start of a case study of how something should go wrong. Like four competitors working together, more out of fear than out of opportunity initially. I love when you mentioned like multiple design agencies and like it, it sort of reads like it should, shouldn't work at face value, but it's such an interesting idea. And the product is great. Like it is a really great service. So I love kind of hearing um, you talk about uh, going into that environment and then kind of how you married the the aspects of the product together and married it with the marketing of the product and how it all uh, sort of came together into this amazing powerhouse of a service. You mentioned briefly the launching of a new design in the middle of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, could you speak a little bit about what your team and, and you needed to do to sort of react? I mean, obviously, it'd be interesting to hear about the impact on streaming behaviors from the pandemic. How did design at Hulu help react to that? Like, how did you um, see what was different and then, you know, adapt to your point, kind of change what you were doing? Right. The The most important things to me, I mean, there's two things that I find that are really important within any uh, design culture or actually any company. Uh, one is a strong, clear vision, very clear about what you're trying to accomplish. And the second thing is culture. And they're not actually stack ranked. They're both equally important. One of the things we had the advantage of coming into the pandemic is that we had a very strong culture. As we even onboarded people during the pandemic, they were indoctrinated, so to speak, into the culture. And they were actually chosen for the culture to make sure that it made sense and it made sense for them. And the the culture being extremely flat, having a lot of radical candor and being more of a passion-based environment than a fear-based thing. So like, even though I was head of the group, the attitude was one that they could speak very openly to me about my, you know, how bad my ideas were, for example. So we ended up having a group that uh, functioned very well because they were functioning well going into it. And then as they got into it, it was very much a a good relationship also between the product design team and the product team itself. And so the two worked too closely together. And so my counterpart, on the product side, uh, a guy named Jim Denny and I kind of worked as a yin-yang combination of personalities. He was extremely very practical in a good way, very focused on organization and, and, and the way that you actually you know make a product go from concept to actual implementation. And I was more or less, you know, more of the vision, kind of like where, where are we going and how are we doing it? So once you have that, it really, it helps kind of unify the whole group. One of the, one of the things that kind of relates to it in a way too, is one of the first things I did when I got to Hulu was I commissioned a vision video and it's a big ask. You know, I, I was in my honeymoon period, you know, for the first 90 days. So I said, can I have a lot of money to go shoot a short film? And they asked why. And, and I said, well, you know, the way I'm looking at it is I'm talking to the product managers at Hulu and they're all describing various aspects of the same thing but it doesn't ladder up into one vision so it's you know i've used this example before but it's like the the parable of the, of the blind man and the elephant you know wherever the person is touching it feels like it's a trunk it feels like a wall it feels like a tail and they're all correct but they're looking at it through this one slice and what i wanted to do is actually then you know make a short film which described the end result you know, what the elephant looked like. And we did this by showing a day in the life of like young people using the product. And at, at the end of this, we ended up showing this, this movie to the entire company. And there was an immediate uh, movement in mentally from one of like, oh, we, we're not really sure to like, oh, that's the elephant. And typically when you're just trying to change a company, 
the typical approach is to iterate. You know, you have the existing armature and you start just legoing on more features. And, and if you talk to a developer about changing something, their immediate reaction is like, oh, I don't think we should do that because it could break a bunch of things down the line. So what a vision video does uh, or a strong prototype or like a way of knowing where you're going is it kind of throws out practicality and reality for a moment. You can suspend that and go, okay, we know, we know all the reasons why you can't do something. Let's just hold that for a second, but look at this thing we can do. And once you're very clear about what that is, the whole mentality switched from like, we can't do this. Like, oh my God, I want to make that. And so all the developers who beforehand been like, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to keep adding on stuff. We're like, oh, let's do that. You know, and they jumped in that direction. Product management really did a, a work back and a roadmap. And then suddenly we had alignment. Right. So that's the vision part of it. Sorry, you have alignment going forward, which is so powerful. Like I always feel like when I come into companies, the uh, the view is for folks to tell me all the reasons we haven't done that in the past. And I really, yeah. I, I've, I haven't done what you've described. It makes so much sense. It aligns people forward. It, yeah, it's it just, it's such a straightforward thing. It's, it's brilliant. You, you come in otherwise and, and yeah, you have to hear people complain because they will. And then, and, and it's true. You should listen to them. One of the things that new people coming into a company should do is not assume that those people who are at the company are not good. There's a tendency to immediately go, well, you've been here. Why haven't you done something to, you know, to date? In reality, you have a lot of sleeper cells within a company that are just waiting for someone to give them the opportunity to really express themselves. And you know, that's what good management is and good leadership is. And once you do that, I've had, quote, problem designers that suddenly were not a problem at all. Uh, they were like precocious kids you know, who were bored out of their minds in, in a classroom. And just needed to have guidance. And once they were, active, I love it. You know, like I love it. it went from being difficult to being like, "Oh, you're awesome." And, and so, once you have that vision, and and you, that's supported by culture, uh, it's pretty simple. You know, at that point. So, going into the change that you're asking about, this last one, we had a very strong vision about what it was we were doing. Um, we presented it to even Bob Iger, uh, who has a, a very interesting, you know, strong interest in design, actually. Once we had that alignment, then we had the culture to quickly do this virtually, and then we were able to do it. Now, one of the things that people lose, I think, in the in the process of, of any business, and it's, it gets to be a little bit woo-woo, but in reality, the human connection between like myself and my team was very important. And it was because I would spend time doing one-on-ones with um, each individual person on my team, as well as one-on-fives, and actually... The majority of those one-on-ones were not even about business. It was really about how are you doing, especially during the pandemic? Like, how are you holding out? How's your family? How's your health? And as comfortable as they are with revealing where they are with everything, that's as far as I would go. Like, if they're not comfortable with talking about their personal lives, that's fine. But if they needed to, I was able to understand that. And it's not only just being good as a human being to another person. If I understand what their challenges are, then I know how far I can push them you know, and then what they can and can't do in that moment. And I'm not looking at them mechanistically of like, why aren't you fulfilling X role or, you know, project, but now I understand the context and then that can help them redistribute their work to someone else who can handle it, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of that that's lost in the kind of high view that a lot of companies have of human beings fulfilling just a role. And in reality, what I find when I'm hiring people is that I assume that you can do the role that you're interviewing for. You probably got through a lot of interviewing just to get to talking to me, right? So I'm not going to question you on your portfolio. 
But what I'd like to find out is like, what are you interested in as a human being? Because I think there's a Venn diagram between one circle being like, here's what the business needs. Here's what your requirements are. Here's the job, la, 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 you know, drive kind of brass tack stuff. The other circle is like, what do you want to do, Andy, for example, in your life? And it sounds a little bit huge, but like, if I understand that you're doing this job, you know, because you can, but your real passion is, I don't know, making ceramics or whatever, I get that. And it doesn't take away from what you're going to do for me, but let's figure out a way in that Venn diagram of where the intersection is to find something that addresses both. It, you know, it, it's good for the business. It's good for you. Because if we do that, then I'm unlocking them on 3X your ability. Because no longer are you just doing the requirement for the job, but you're now learning and you're engaged. So therefore, you're automatically going to do more work, which helps the business, which helps you. But in order to get to that point, you actually have to, you actually have to care about the people that you're dealing with. And especially talk, what's tough is when you're dealing with a person you may not even like who's in your organization. And this is where design, you know, empathy is very important because you may not like someone, but you have to kind of transcend that and get to like what it is about them that you can do to help them. It's counterintuitive. The more of a jerk someone is to you, the more it's important for you to lean into that and then try to break it open. Because once you do, it tends to be like remarkable. Nine times out of 10, the problem goes away, you know. Now, some people are just jerks. You can't do much about them and you have to figure out how to manage them out. And that's that's one thing. But a lot of time, times, there's just an, um, a frustration, not to be a psychotherapist for these people in my team, but once I understand that and they understand that I see them, it oftentimes got rid of that problem and then we can get very quickly to the business at hand. But I think what is often missing um, is the realization that we're all human beings with our own our own pain and our own challenges and that we're not just like, you know, these Zoom people like, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. But there's a dog barking, you know, my kid's throwing up in the other room, you know, I'm, I'm late on my payments in my car, whatever it is, that has to be kind of taken into consideration as well. And we don't ever talk about that stuff, I think, in general. We tend I think to be- you're right. I love the individuality of it, right? And this is one of the things that um, I've talked a lot about it inside user testing as being one of my uh, challenges with the pandemic when you're running a large organization, when something like this hits, there's no simple corporate wide program that solves for everybody. Everybody had different individual challenges, situations, things that we're dealing with. And what we found as a management team, when we really leaned into that, we built a stronger connection with our teams. We we're actually able to get even more done, which was sort of fascinating, uh, mm-hmm. even in a really challenging time. And I think there's a lesson coming out of that that doesn't go away with the pandemic of just like leaning into to your point of like really understanding people individually. It's how we all want to be treated. We want to be treated as as full people with with unique things going on in our lives. And I think I think that makes a lot of sense. It's very smart. Going back to your mention of the vision video and how you partnered with the head of product and you had the design perspective included. I'd also, this next question is a little, I guess, twofold, if you will. So the first is, how did customers and potential users kind of play into that vision, right? Um, how did you sort of fuel that vision with, with that sort of feedback and perspective? And then also, how did you ensure that the feedback that you were getting was actually representative and inclusive of mm. all people? So um, in your book, which by the way, I would recommend to everyone listening, pick it up. Um, I was telling Andy that I love the book so much. I left an Amazon review and I think that's the first time I've ever done something like that. You have a quote in here that says, at Hulu, we strive to tackle the needs of the disenfranchised and underserved, the sight impaired, the hearing impaired, those with limited or no physical mobility. 
addressing marginalized audiences in an attempt to tackle inequalities and injustice in a world built for the idolized human. Most of us are not this ideal. Yeah, I, I actually can tell you a bit of a of a mistake that I made when we launched Hulu, the new redesign. We launched it, and then there was actually a gentleman within the development team who um, has, you know, sight impaired. And has what I realized, you know, when he talked to me, because the gradient colors that I'm using, where I used back then, we had corrected it since then, uh, were completely inaccessible for him. You know, the typography was too thin; he couldn't read it. There was no way to, you know, switch it out of like the beauty mode into something much more black and white and practical for him. And I was like, so glad to hear this feedback. And I was able to use that. We actually ended up developing a group of people who actually focused on uh, on people with disabilities. The, you know, the trick is, and, and the problem I realized is that I had my own bias, which was I was designing to some extent for someone who was like me, you know, which is what we tend to do in general. And, and being like me means that, you know, I can see, I can move, I can hear pretty well. And what I I totally misstepped on was actually not lo- looking at diversity across a much larger spectrum. Now, the good thing is the design team that I hired, uh, and this is not just me, it was, you know, the culture, once it starts becoming a certain way, it starts to propagate this further, was by already by nature diverse. And because of this, um, a series of what are called employee resource groups or ERGs were born out of the team. So Hulu Black came out of the team. Hulu Pride was a huge part of it. Um, Hulu Asian Pacific Islander. I think there was about seven or eight ERGs that originated, you know, in my team at Hulu. And I'm not taking credit for this at all. I just simply built the environment which allowed for that to to prosper. And as part of that, uh, the team became very uh, activist in making sure that what we were doing from a design perspective was reflective of them you know, a much more diverse audience because there's a tendency, you know, to design in a design bias towards one's own proclivities and, you know, way of looking at things. And, and I, I realized that I was only one point of view in a, in a myriad, you know, spectrum of people who are using the product. So to answer your question, one of the things that's interesting about any kind of research is I, I do think it's a balance between vision and research. I think a lot of companies, you know, tend to focus solely on one or the other. They either have like the, the rock star design leader who she or he has, you know, a vision and they do that and it looks amazing and nobody uses it. Or they have, you know, a, a, something that's been user tested really well, but ultimately it doesn't quite have the, the feeling of, you know, craft perhaps that you would have if you had a bit. So I think you need both. So what, what I ended up doing is, you know, setting a vision and then stress testing that vision with testing. So we had, you know, facility downstairs at Hulu, which was a one-way mirror with cameras. And we were actually uh, able to bring in people weekly and every two weeks who were from a very large, diverse pool who either had not used Hulu before or had used Hulu and were like going to be exposed to the new design. And it was a humbling experience to look through the window and, you know, almost want to yell out like, you know, click the button, click the button, you know, it's right there. And they couldn't find it and they couldn't. And, and, and what I realized is so many of my assumptions and my team's assumptions about how human beings actually um, interacted with a design were completely wrong, completely, I mean, like shockingly wrong. And, you know, and then our researchers would ask me like, well, you know, please try to find X show. 
and they were going through all these different, you know, pathways, which were completely not, I'm like, there's one easy way to get there and they weren't doing it. So um, it was a combination of like, you know, having that kind of feedback from the UX research team uh, coupled, you know, with the uh, vision. And the reason why vision is important is if you don't, you tend to just ape what is what the competition is doing. There's a tendency that, you know, when someone is successful, you go, okay, I'm going to replicate that across the board. Going way back when I was at CBS.com, um, we did, uh, you know, the, the mentality was like, everything's got to be above the fold. If you remember those days, you know, like you could have all your information above the fold and, and whatever that is. And so I said, well, okay, then we need to rotate that information. So we built the first carousel, you know, that was, you know, unfortunately, I'm sorry about unleashing that on the world because it became the thing that everybody started doing. Within a month of doing the carousel, which I wasn't even a big fan of, even though I, you know, helped make it happen, NBC.com, Fox.com, everybody started doing the same thing. And then you ended up like with these sites where you're watching and it moves and moves. And you're like, oh, stop moving. So and the same thing happened is that, you know, when Netflix is an ascendancy, the idea was like, let's put as many, you know, tiles up of, you know, shows as we can. And, and this is kind of like based on the blockbuster mentality. When you walk into a blockbuster, there's like, you know, back in the day when there was blockbusters, you would have uh, spines of like different shows you would go through and you would just kind of like get lost. And hopefully there's like an editorial pick at the front, you know, and you would go through that because at the time, and this is in 2016, everybody was doing like the mosaic approach of like oversaturating information. I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to actually like, you know, have a, a cinematic image that you would come into based upon a recommendation engine. And then you would then be able to then kind of like land there and then go through the rest of it. And then as you go further down the page, you would have more of a, uh, of a tray situation with more content. The interesting thing about that is that even though that was counterintuitive, it ended up, it ended up working quite well. You know, people actually really like that. And when we did an update, the last update I was talking about, we increased uh, information density by putting more choices uh, ironically, it didn't test that much differently. You know, you would have thought, okay, more choices, more people are going to, you know, click on more stuff. But it's the cognitive overload that you always have to kind of balance to make sure. And and with UX, the interesting thing too is it ultimately, and I'm not going to disparage my own discipline, but UX is just one part of the overall thing. It, you can have the most amazing UX, but if the recommendation engine is not relevant to you, if the content is not relevant then it doesn't matter. You know, ultimately you need to get to what you need to get to. I'm not sure if that totally answered your question, Janelle. I know I'm kind of meandering a bit, but those are the different elements that, I, that go into consideration when you are designing and you are, you know, you're having a strong, clear vision, but then you're also coupling it with stress testing it through user testing. I, I love that answer, John. It reminds me of um, <clears throat> a time when I was at Salesforce and we fought really hard to get a button and uh, on the top part of the page and one of the big important pages my, my team did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then when we, uh, went through user testing of that, we realized that there had been so much competition to be at the top end of the page. And it was so dense when, uh, salespeople would land on the page, they would immediately start scrolling. They were so used to being too dense at the top. So there was this like knife fight internally to try to get some real estate space that apparently no one spent any time on. It was sort of this interesting realization of like what we thought was important and what right. our end user thought was important were completely diverging and uh, how they use the product. Um, well, I'd like to just shift gears a little bit. Um, you do such a good job of articulating the value 
that your team brings into that experience, right? Just listening to kind of the approach you've taken through, um, you know, both at CBS, but also at, at Hulu and, and, uh, and throughout your career. Um, we get asked a lot, especially from folks in the design area about sort of the business case for design, right? Like how do we, how do we get the budget to make uh, a, a vision video? How do we get the budget to hire the design resources we need? Like, how do we, how do we insert ourselves in the process so that it's not, you know, we don't have time to do design. Let's just let the product managers guess and we'll kind of go from there. Like, how do you think about communicating the value and the business case for somebody maybe who's just trying to make that argument in an organization that maybe hasn't had that reek of like, boy, when we design a great product, people use it. Like, how do you, how do you help that person make a business case for design? Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to me that I think 90% of my career, 90% of my time has been explaining to the C-suite what design is and its value. And, and it, it always shocks me because, I you know, I can point at things like, I don't know, Apple going all the way back uh, from Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive um, to more recent examples of like, you know, Brian Chesky and, and Airbnb. These are design-led companies. And it seems kind of obvious. And, and, and I have all kinds of data that shows that when you have good design, you increase your KPIs exponentially. So a lot of my time is spent actually championing design. And it's difficult because within an organization, and I'm being really stereotypical here, but you know, product managers are trained to communicate. That you know, They're trained to explain what the product is. Designers by their very nature, along with developers, are the makers of the product. So they tend to be a lot more introverted and a lot less capable of eloquently explaining what it is they're doing. They'd rather just make it, you know, like, and so a lot of what I had to learn how to do came naturally to me to some extent is storytelling and going in and explaining, number one, what the story of design is and its value to like the CEO. Because most of the time I have to get them to understand the definition of design is not art, it's not decoration. And, and if they know anything about design, they'll kind of think it's in terms of marketing, like it's a billboard or it's a commercial or what have you. And so I have to kind of explain different kinds of design, you know, like give them a quick over, an over, overview of the history of design and where we are now. And a lot of this comes out of the fact that historically product design and product development came out of the 90s, you know, like in terms of like really taking off. The engineering driven kind of design that was happening in the 90s was like Amazon in eBay, where it was terrible UX, but you know the very fact that I could click on something and it's a, a package would show up a week later was like, woo, you know that's that's the bar. You know it worked. And then after that, there was the the era of like moving from development driven kind of design to product driven design in the two thousands. And then that afterwards in the two thousand tens, suddenly we were in the era of like experience design. You know, like where suddenly it became important. And so what is interesting is like I've spent decades explaining the value of design to companies. And it's only been within the last few years that the pendulum flipped. I, I kind of you know have the uh, fortuitous luck now of like getting constantly called you know by large finance companies, you know, fintech companies and and other streaming companies and other tech companies who basically are like going, oh crap, we realize now that we need to actually have a design practice you know within our company. And kind of the, the short thing that I'm doing right now as a consultant, it's kind of like Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction. You know, like I, I come in when everything is blown up, you know, as the fixer and it's, and take a look and analyze quickly, like what's your design culture, what's your company culture, what are you trying to get a, accomplished? And then I help these companies very quickly set up their own design culture and system 
But, you know, to, to your point, a lot of my time has been very patiently, and it's probably because my dad was a professor, uh, learning how to almost in a professorial way explain what this is. And so one of the techniques I use, uh, I learned from actually a friend of mine named Michael Margolis, who um, has a uh, company called Storied. You know, he said you should always lead with the vision when you're doing something. What you do is you go in, for example, if I was going to try to do a new uh, experience I'm showing to a CEO, I would come in with a high you know, fidelity prototype or I'd come in with, you know, because nothing is more powerful than actually handing someone that works in their hands uh, very quickly versus a Google, you know, presentation. And then once you do that and you show them like maybe a short film, you know, whatever the case is, depending on your budget, you, now you have their dopamine going like, oh, wow, I want to do that, which is immediately followed by skepticism. It's immediately followed by like, that sounds great. It sounds like BS to me. How are you going to do this? So immediately, you know, the first part, get their endorphins going, their dopamine release, immediately followed by data, 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 data. Here's what the UX research shows. Here's what the trends show. Here's what the market shows. And so what I'm doing is hitting both sides of their brains, getting them excited. Here's a clear vision. And here's how we're going to do it. So then it gives them comfort from moving from like excitement to like, oh, practicality. This is actually how we can do it. I like it. Uh, and I like the analogy. I think uh, was Harvey Keitel was the wolf, right? So you're like the yeah. <laughs> the wolf for design teams. I think it's, it's perfect. That's, that's good branding. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, it, it just became kind of clear that I was getting called and asked, like, you know, we have we have a problem, you know, with our team. We're not sure what to do. The designers hate us. They're not listening to what we're doing. They're demoralized. What can we do? You know, and a lot of the principles that I talk about in the, in the Art of Creative Rebellion, the book, uh, or basically kind of what I've been talking to you about as well, you know, culture, very important, yeah. uh, acknowledgement, having people not feel like they are, at, you know, the behest of, of a service kind of mentality where they have no skin in the game and they have no investment in it. They're just being told, go do this, go fetch, you know, and I think the problem is a lot of designers are kind of trained in that because they go into agencies and agencies are kind of uh, environments where like, okay, the client wants to do this, go do it. Right. And there's no pushback. There's no dialogue. And I think that training uh, designers, you know, to be able to speak their truth because they're trained problem solvers. They're not just pixel pushers. They're actually trained to solve problems for users. And that's what they go to school for. Uh, and that part is completely lost to most executives. They think, oh, you just make things look cool. You know, well, yes. And we can also help on this other part. And so it takes a little bit to do that. But once you get that culture going, companies take off. I mean, they, they make incredible product. Everybody's happy. Product is actually happy because now they have a partner in design. Uh, development's happy because they actually have people who are designing with them. You know, so oftentimes I will put a, a designer physically next to a developer. So the two of them are actually playing off each other because oftentimes a designer goes, I have an idea for this new pattern library that we're going to use. And the developer goes, that's already in the SDK. It's already existing. You don't need to rebuild that. And then so you get into this dialogue back and forth and it causes efficiencies very quickly. I was wondering if we could jump into what we call the lightning question round. So it's really just a series of four questions. Share yeah. with us whatever whatever comes to mind. A recent book you've read recently uh, that you'd recommend to listeners. Yeah, there's a, a book. I don't know if it has, uh, I think it has relevance for anybody. It's um, There's an author named Stephen Pressfield. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he... 
he, he wrote a book before called the, the War of Art, not the Art of War, but the War of Art. But a book that I read recently of his was called uh, Turning Pro. It's an interesting thing for me because there's an idea that there's a thing you do oftentimes, which is a shadow career. You know, you do a job which kind of fulfills maybe 80% of what you really want to be doing. Uh, and the example in Hollywood, for example, would be, you know, he gave is like an entertainment lawyer took the job of being a lawyer because it's safe, but they love storytelling. So they, they work in the entertainment industry, you know, doing work for writers, producers, and actors. But what they really want to be is a writer, producer, and actor. But what they're doing is they're working kind of t- tangentially to that. And I, I think what's interesting about what Stephen Pressfield writes about in Turning Pro is when you move from amateur, which is that kind of interest, into pro, and you completely move away from the idea of like, I'm going to service this thing into actually doing it, you know, which is one level kind of cool because you're near the fire, but you're never going to be the artist unless you give yourself that chance. And most people, there's this terrifying moment of kind of moving from like the safety of doing a job that you can do to actually giving yourself the opportunity to do the thing you really want to do, which may have high risk, you know, but has high reward, which is kind of what I'm doing right now, actually, is I'm, I'm switching away from working in large corporations uh, to doing it on my own. You know, so Turning Pro by Stephen Pressfield, I think is a good one. Thanks for that. A piece of advice you'd give to someone trying to convince others, maybe the C-suite, uh, to invest in customer-centric design. The um, It's important, you know, to get buy-in uh, from the highest level person you can within an organization as a designer. You, ne- you need to have a champion, you know, preferably it's a CEO, uh, but you, if you don't have uh, the champion and buy-in of the top executive in your company, you're always going to be a grassroots kind of program. And you'll probably end up being an irritation to the C-suite because I'll be like, why are you wasting time doing that when I want you to be doing this other thing? Understandably, you know, like, you know, I hired you to do a thing over here and you're doing all this other stuff. So it's really important to, to pull them into that, you know, understanding. And by the way, if the CEO or CFO or C, whatever the C-level is not buying it, then you have a, an existential question for yourself. Should I stay here or not? It's not their responsibility, by the way, to, f- to fulfill your personal needs. You know, the, the CEO's responsibility is to make sure the business runs. If you have an enlightened CEO, then yes, they're going to be open to it. But if they're not, then it's, they have no obligation to see the world your way. And it's up to you to go, well, can I stay here and affect change? Or should I go somewhere else? And if they don't want it, by the way, if they're not buying what you're selling, then don't oversell. Just go find the right environment for yourself. I think. Really, really good advice. Yeah. Last question here. Given your design space, experience space, I think if you're anything like I am, you tend to uh, overanalyze and, and notice great experiences and really bad ones. Can you share with us a recent great experience that you had and what made it so great? It sounds like completely like, you know, tooting our own horn, but I think that really the, my best experience of designing anything was Hulu. You know, it's rare that you have the opportunity to come into a company and completely change it at scale. I mean, the thing is exciting about being a product designer is that you do something, anything that you, you envisioned, that you designed, you crafted, goes out to millions of people. And it's literally in our case, sitting in your bedroom, you know, like it's as close as a, to a person as you can possibly be. And I, I will always be grateful to you know Hulu for allowing me the opportunity to come in and really take huge license with their their business, which you know is worth billions of dollars. 
and the ability to kind of come in uh, and build culture. And probably the best experience I ever had was that. And one and one of the most extraordinary things. And I wish I could I could you know this was video. But when I when I left Hulu, one of the things that happened is that my design team actually put together this box, this book uh, for me, which was um, all the work that we had done over the last five years. And you know, if you can see, you can't see it because it's audio, but it's in a wooden box, it's bespoke and crafted, and it's a huge book. Wow. And, and you know, it's basically a, they said a tribute to me, but it was, you know, really amazing because within it there were, um, you know, pictures of designers and myself and notes that go all the way through it. You know, that's incredible drawings, right? And ultimately, you know, like essays that they wrote, which was pretty extraordinary. But then there's also pictures of um, the team, you know, and all the work that we did. And probably the most meaningful thing that ever happened to me, and the, the, the probably the most important artifact to me is really enough, this book, you know, because it, it tells me that I actually helped people, you know, directly. Whereas, you know, the design that I did for Hulu, even though I'm proud of it, it's ephemeral. It, you know, it's already changed. And the thing that I did five, four years ago is no longer the thing that's up there now. Or the thing that I did even you know eight months ago, or SEI, it's myself, my team, and I. It changes. So you know, not to get too over the top here, but ultimately, the most important impact you have is not only at scale, you know, with the, the customers you're servicing, but it's literally the people around you, you know. And and if you can make them into better you know, designers, better creative people, or just better human beings for fulfilling their own potential that's probably the most important design problem you solve. Thank you. That's such a great gift and more than one way. So that, that's yeah, amazing. No, I was so touched. It was amazing. Yeah. So nice. Well, uh, John, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been incredible. Learned a lot, got a lot of great tips. And um, I think, you know, it's great just to, to hear your perspective on, on all things design and, and, and UX and even beyond that. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you. I really thank you. Thanks, Janelle. Thanks, Andy. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.